Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Falkaran. More importantly, I have a very special guest for you today. I get the the honor of speaking with Dr. Patrick Olivelle, a, um, a towering figure in the field of, of Hindu studies of Indian religions. Um, and he is Professor Emeritus at uh, University of Texas, Austin. Uh, Patrick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Raj. We will be speaking about uh, a, a brand new OUP uh, uh, publication that Patrick's uh, edited called Grihasta, The Householder in Ancient Indian Religious Culture. But since I have the opportunity to speak with so seasoned a scholar, um, we'll take the time to learn a little bit about you and your scholarly journey. Could you tell us a little bit about how you got roped into this discipline? <laughs> <laughs> um, a series of accidents, as uh, it normally happens. Um, yeah, um, my first uh, love or first uh, what I wanted to do was to work in Buddhism. And I came to Oxford to do my first degree. Uh, and there I did Sanskrit and Pali. And I then came to the University of Pennsylvania, uh, hoping to continue in Buddhist studies. But uh, uh, a lot of accidents, a lot of things prevented me from doing that. Uh, also, the requirement at that time of doing a lot of other languages, and I was already too old to study a new language. So I gravitated towards uh, the more mainstream Brahmanical Sanskrit tradition, also because I had a wonderful teacher there, Dr. Ludo Roche, uh, who became my mentor. Um, and the rest, as they say, is history. You know, I have to say, um, I typically leave this podcast as accessible and open as possible, but my primary scholarship engages um, epics and Puranas. Ludo Roche basically wrote the scholarly Bible on the Puranas. Right. <laughs> and so it is, it's, um, it's, it's staggering to me that uh, your teacher was Ludo Roche. So um, unsurprising, perhaps. Um, so, what was your what sorts of questions most gripped you when you began studying? Did that perhaps change over time? Uh, themes, interests, like what were you most interested in finding out? Yeah. Well, when I first started, this was in the late nineteen sixties, believe it or not, uh, a long time ago. Um, at that time, basically, uh, we had a very naive idea. I at least had a very naive idea that we could learn about something or some people or some region or period of history uh, by reading texts. Um, and my students today would think of it as rather quaint. Uh, but that's how we started. Um, when I first started learning Panini at Oxford, Professor Thomas Barrow was my professor. We came there, these are probably the second year of Sanskrit. 
and he started punning me. So we came into his office. He put on his teaching robe, sat down, and started with the first sutra of Panini. We had no idea who Panini was, what when, when he lived, what his intellectual trajectories were, what the Paninian tradition was, uh, nothing. Um, so that was, I think, uh, sort of take the, take the text and read the text and try to understand it. That was there. And uh, I, I told my students, for me, over the last uh, close to 50 years now of working in this field, it has been as much a process of unlearning than of learning. A uh, process whereby uh, we, that I had the pleasure of working with a lot of people, especially my students, who challenged me in many ways. Uh, and uh, and, and, and uh, I, I think the most of what I've done in the last few years has been to take, the, take things that are, uh, that we are used to, uh, that that we take for granted, and trying to make them unusual or not taken for granted, huh? uh, and uh, and I think that is uh, some of my work uh, in the nineteen nineties when I started working with Dharma Shastra. Uh, had this strange but interesting idea of where does the word dharma come from? Few people have looked at the history of dharma, uh, but thought of dharma as something that is always there in India. It is pan-Indian, it is forever there. Um, and as you uh, investigated it, I think things became much more complicated. And uh, that is what also took me to Ashoka, uh, of whose life I am just finished a biography. Uh, and uh, still not published. Um, but that's where I, I came to Ashoka through Dharma because Dharma is a central concept of Ashoka uh, when it was not such a central concept in the Brahmanical tradition. So yeah, this has been, uh, uh, I became much more convinced that looking at significant words, the semantic histories of words that we take often for granted gives us a lot of insight uh, into uh, the cultural and religious history of ancient India, the way we cannot through other, there are of course other areas that are so significant, archeological, art historical, epigraphical, and all of that, you know, that's very important. Uh, but looking at words, uh, I'll give you one example. I'm, I may be talking too much here, uh, but, um, uh, Recently, I was asked to do uh, <clears throat> write an article for a freshrift um, uh, for uh, Charles Malamud of, uh, of uh, France. Uh, and there I started working on the very common term in Sanskrit called dvija, twice born. If you look at an introduction to Hinduism, that's the first thing they will say. There are four varnas. The first three are dvijas, right? That's there, right? And a little digging showed me that the first time the word dvija is used is in a text from probably the second or even the first century before Christ. Before that, the word doesn't exist. So then you ask the question, why would you invent a new category? What's the social 
economic, political history of this new category. Uh, and at the same time, we have other parallel things coming up. For example, the word shishta, used quite frequently in many Sanskrit terms, emerges with Patanjali at the same time in the second century. And the, the, and the, and the, and the, and the sacred geography contained within the, within the category of Aryavarta comes again with Patanjali at about the same time. So these are very interesting things that I think that we can, we can historicize these, these concepts that are taken for granted. Thank you. Uh, that, 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 that's a wonderful way of, of, of contextualizing and evidencing your, 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 your scholarly MO. I mean, there's no one who studies Indian religions who, who wouldn't be at least vaguely familiar with your work. And so for general audience, we understand that um, you are fascinated with terms, with concepts, with their historicity, with the world behind the text, as it were. You said something at the outset that I think is so important and so fascinating. Um, it's something that can be said only after uh, a lifetime of scholarship where you can perceive the shifts in zeitgeist, the shifts in methodologies. You can perceive a couple of generations at least worth of change. Certainly, uh, some decades from now, I'll look at my own work on the Devi Mahatmyan. It may occur to me, wow, there are certain influences currently at play to which we are immune because, you know, the fish is in the water. Fish cannot see the water. So I love the fact that you commence by by admitting the naivete and the skewed perspective, particularly in our culture, towards a textual where even in a, a situation where somebody is 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 uttering forth a purana live in the moment, a kata, somebody will naively uh, ask, "Well, what text do I get that from? Where is that in text?" We have this. We have this bias that serves us well in certain ways and does a disservice in other ways, particularly as engaging um, other, other traditions, right, and religion on the ground. But having said that and having owned that with wonderful clarity and humility, nevertheless, you demonstrate the power of textual study. Nevertheless, you're showing what can be learned through text. Yeah. Well, what I would say is this. Um, to transcend text, you have to go through texts. In other words, uh, uh, my good friend, uh, Stephanie Jamieson, about you know, we, the book that we are looking at, Grahasta owes its origins to her discovery, uh, has said, we must learn to read between the lines. In other words, look at things that are unsaid, the pregnant silences in the texts. That's where we get from the text to context and behind the text. Uh, there is no other way to get there because the text is all what we have. Uh, my good friend who influenced me very much in the 1980s as we taught together at Indiana University, Gregory Chopin, who wrote a great uh, article during that time called the Protestant Presuppositions in Buddhist Studies, right? Uh, where the text becomes such an important part, the Bible, uh, the textual tradition. Uh, and he was trying to move away from it to, to inscriptions. But of course, the inscriptions are also in some way texts that you can read, right? So they cannot be taken at face value either. 
you have to get behind the inscriptions um, and uh, you need to ask questions of inscriptions because ordinary people don't write inscriptions. They don't know the language. They don't know the script. They don't have the money to do all those things, right? So there are even inscriptions. We catch only an elite portion of the of the population. Uh, so yeah, I think I think that is very important to to go behind the text. You have to go through the text, all right? And and but you have to be a close, uh, attentive reader of the text to ask questions like, why is this person not talking about X when we expect him to talk about? Give one example. Ashoka has uh, a large corpus of inscriptions, largest by any one ruler of India, and also very perceptive. uh, I call my biography of him uh, a portrait of a philosopher king. The philosopher king. And in all of his, of his uh, uh, inscriptions, there are silences that tells us what may be happening behind. For example, he does not use the term varna or caste in his entire corpus. He does not use terms such as Vaishya or Kshatriya or Shudra, which is the in the first page of any Hinduism textbook, you have those terms as if they are, they are from the beginning. But Ashoka is silent on them, right? Ashoka is silent on central Indian belief systems, such as rebirth and karma, when he could have made use of it very well to support his ethical philosophy or his moral philosophy. But he doesn't do that. Then we ask questions, why? I think that's how you get behind the text, to ask other questions, to which we may not have answers, but at least which opens up areas of inquiry hmm? that may not me, but my students and others in the future uh, can investigate. You mentioned in passing, as an example, in response to the last question, the the journey of understanding dharma, the the inception, its uses, and so there perhaps may not be more, no more. Uh, there perhaps isn't a, a term that is more seminal to to Indic thought than this term dharma. So tell us, teach us something. Those of us listening on the podcast, what have you learned about the origins of this term? Well, which is interesting because dharma has many origins, many points of origin. Uh, It has its birth in the Rig Veda, used 67 times in the Rig Veda. But it is invented by the Rig Vedic poets. We don't have parallels in the Avesta or other Indo-European. It has no Indo-European roots. So somebody coined a neologism, a new term. Then you could ask, why? Because people don't just invent terms without, without any reason, because you normally use terms that are given to you in the culture, in the language, right? When you are inventing a new word, then you are trying to express something new. And that's something we can look at. But then, when you come to the Middle Vedic period, even the Upanishads, you find that Dharma is there, but in the background. It's not a central, foregrounded term. The, all of the early Upanishads, there are five, I think, passages 
where the term dharma occurs. It's not at the, uh, at the forefront of those composers of those things, right? And then we come to Ashoka. Ashoka uses about 110 times dharma in his inscriptions that have only about 4,000 words, right? So I, I think something like once every 27 words, he uses the term dharma. That's at the forefront of his mind as he's writing, right? And the same can be said with, about Buddhism. Uh, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, right? The triple gem. Dharma is at the center, at the very heart of Buddhism. Then you find, so, so you have a reinvention of the term, new, uh, with the new religions coming up with Ashoka. Then you find a whole genre of literature written by Brahmins called Dharma Shastras, where Dharma is the very first word, right? When it had not been a central thing for hundreds of years. So you find a rediscovery of the term Dharma as defining the Brahmanical way of life at a particular time in history, probably around the same time as Ashoka, right? So you find, a, and then you find new inventions of the term, which is happening today in India, right? The Dharma, right? As a, as a, as a, as a term that is given new meanings. Uh, so it has had many, at least I can see three, two or three uh, origins. No, I wouldn't say origins, but reconceptualizations of the term that is happening. And, uh, and I, I'm sure that it is, it is the use of dharma by these new religions, Jain, especially Buddhist, uh, and their success at the beginning uh, that gave rise to the centrality of dharma within Indian civilization. Uh, and, uh, and I try to point out in some of my writings how this came about, because I think although dharma is not a central term in the middle Vedic period that, I, that we call the Brahmanas and especially the Upanishads, uh, it is there especially within the context of the royal vocabulary. Dharma is central when you look at the Raja Suya, the anointing, the consecration of a new king. And Dharma is connected with Varuna. Varuna is the king of gods, the divine king. He's called Dharma Pati, the lord of Dharma. And the king is, becomes Dharma. I think, and this is what I've tried to argue, that the new religions are also thinking of their founders as new Chakravartins, universal emperors. And you see a lot of royal vocabulary being used within, within these new religions to define their new religions. So who is the, who is the new uh, uh, founder of these religions? In Jainism, it is the Jinnah, the victorious one, right? Jinnah. Uh, the uh, Buddhist doctrine is called Shasana, which is the royal decree, right? Uh, so, and dharma comes to within it, I think, right? Dharma also is the royal vocabulary that is now being appropriated by, by, the, by the new religions and then by, by Ashoka. Fascinating. So speaking of terms and their importance and their study, let us turn to um, the, 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 the topic proper of the podcast, which is a term called grahasta. What does Krasta mean? Yeah, so 
for the longest time, I include myself, we have glided over, glossed over this term. We thought we knew what it meant, right? Grahastha was always translated as household. A married man with wife and children living in a home, right? Very simple, right? Very simple. Uh, so there are grahasthas in America, right? <laughs> uh, contributing to social security and paying taxes and things like that, right? But then when Stephanie Jamison, who was writing the chapter on Grahastha, for an edited volume in Oxford, uh, Oxford University series called the Encyclopedia of Hinduism, we were writing the section on Dharma Shastra or Hindu law. And she was writing this chapter on householder. And she did a due diligence philologically to get, okay, okay let's look at where the hell this comes from, this word. And she looked and she couldn't find it. She could not find the term grahastha anywhere in the Vedic corpus, not in the Brahmanas, is not in the Upanishads, is not in the Shravata Sutras, nowhere. And it just props up out of nowhere in the Dharma Shastras. That's the birth of this, of this volume, basically. Huh? So grahastha, basically, we have to go and look at its etymology. Grahastha is not a householder but who lives or stays in a house. Graha, st staying in a house. And the only place where it is found frequently is not in the Sanskrit, but in the Prakrit literature. And not surprisingly, in the Ashokan inscriptions. In the Ashokan inscriptions, Grahastha occurs several times, but always paired with Pravrajita or Pabbajita. Huh? Pravrajita is the one who has gone forth. One who has gone forth is contrasted with one who has remained behind at home without going forth. The two are paired and the two are paired in a way that these become the two kinds of what, what people would call homo religiosus, the religious, new religious person. So this is not a guy who is sort of a uh, married a wife, staying at home, doing his stuff and all that. No, these are holy people who are devoted to their religious quest. Some doing it by going away and living an itinerant, mendicant lifestyle like Buddhist monks and giant monks and others staying at home and doing a, a similar program of holiness, but while at home. And that is the concept that is born within these new religions, taken over by the Dharma Shastra writers and made into a category of orthodox Brahmanical tradition, saying the kinds of stay at home that we are talking about are these new holy people who follow the, the, the Brahmanical uh, ritual and ethical program uh, and this term is not found in the Veda. Veda, it is Grapati. Grapati is a very different concept. So uh, what Stephanie Jemison has done is to show that the, to have a, uh, such a disruption in vocabulary must also imply a disruption in the conceptual 
uh, view uh, of these people who call themselves or who are called grahastas. So that is sort of the beginning. Then we try to, in the book, find how this term grahasta is used in a variety of traditions, literary and, and, uh, and, uh, and religious uh, in the ancient world in India, right? So as opposed to the renouncing holy man, that becomes, you know, so seminal to Indic thought. We have this concept, this need to articulate and support the homestay holy man. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, uh, which Weber had called, uh, in the sociologist has called uh, innerworldly asceticism. So you are an ascetic while staying at home. And I think that is the, that is the takeaway from this. Um, uh, it, it is also connected, as you may have seen, to another concept that for the first time, again, we find in Ashoka called Pashanda. Pashanda is a term that is used in later literature with a pejorative meaning defining the other, the bad guys, right? That, that's, that's the normal way, normally translated as a heretic uh, uh, or a heterodox person. Um, but in Ashoka, it is purely a neutral category which deals with religious traditions, demographically identifiable religious traditions. There are many Pashandas. He na names five of them. He names five of them in his thing. Brahman, Ajivaka, um, Ajivaka, uh, Buddhist, and Jain, four of them, I'm sorry. So four of them, uh, three uh, Brahmins and three others uh, in, in his inscriptions uh, and and this is where a little disagreement happens among we who worked on this on this particular volume is whether the grahastha pravrajita dichotomy is also existent within a pashanda, or with, whether I have tried to argue that a pashanda contains two kinds of members, one the pravrajita who have gone out, the professional religious who are Buddhist monks or Jain monks, and the lay people who are devotees, who are often called upasaka, who stay at home, but live religious dedicated lives, and they are the grahastas. Right. I, I, I'm, I'm sort of um, sitting on my, um, um, my, my technical questions, <laughs> my, yes. my specialist questions. This utterly fascinates me. One of my great intrigues with Indian religions is this, this you know, this bipedal uh, entity of Dharma, this tension of ascetics and kings. And um, uh, really, you know, my work isn't primarily historical, although obviously historicity is important to understanding the reception and the composition of the epics and the Puranas. Uh, but I see this as a really powerful narrative trope of having these forest hermits, these figures in the forest who are, what are they? They're, 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 they're both renouncers and householding Brahmanas at the same time as right. a powerful means of encapsulating this tension. Uh, do you want to say a little bit about that? And then I'll ask less self-serving questions. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So the, the, the issue, of course, is that at least with the Brahmanical conception of the Pravrajita, people who have left home, there are two kinds. If you look at the Apastamba Dharma Sutra, it is very clear because he uses the term Pravrajita for both kinds. One is the Pravrajita who is 
what we call today a world renouncer, who's a mendicant, itinerant, has no home, hmm? uh, has no fire, anagni, aniketa, right? The other is the vanaprastha or vaikhanasa. Vanaprastha is a person who has gone to the forest and lives somewhat of a sedentary life, hmm? uh, at least in the, in the view of later Dharma Shastras, either with his wife or alone, right? Uh, but lives in the forest, subsisting on forest produced, uncultivated produce. In other words, he has left civilization. He has, uh, he has to, his, everything he does is called agramya, not connected with the grammar, right? Those are the two kinds of ascetic uh, ways of life that, that, that they talk about. Um, and whether, I mean, it's very clear that you find the, <clears throat> in later Sanskrit Kavya literature, this forest hermit becomes a central figure in, in epic and, 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 you know, belle you know, the Kavyas, etc. cetera. Uh, how much and how, how long this tradition uh, continued in India is, uh, is, is debatable. Uh, whether, for example, during the time of Kalidasa, who talks a lot about the ashramas, right, in the, in the forest, whether actually there were any people who were doing that, uh, doing that. In fact, when later time, two or three centuries later, there's a whole list of Kali Yuga Vargyas, what has to be avoided in the Kali age, which is our age, one of them is the Vanaprastha, that you should not become a Vanaprastha, right? So, so this is a very interesting thing that, that, is, that, that, that you have. Um, so yeah, that is a, that is a issue. Um, and um, uh, the, the normative text give very clear descriptions of the kind of life that the forest hermits led or was supposed to lead, right? The issue is how historical it is and how much of a sort of a, a theoretical classificatory system it is, yeah. In the case of the, the epics in particular, I really view this as a very rich narrative trope. Right. It, 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 it's, it's encoding ideology more than, more than historicity. And, Anyhow, um, back to the podcast, um, th there are a number of fascinating, fascinating um, um, examinations of the term, and uh, it's really over the span of, of Hinduism or Indian religions as we have it. Do you want to say a quick word about the structure of the papers or the, 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 con the contributions to yes. the volume? Uh, right. So basically, it is structured around the first few chapters dealing with 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 the with the issue at hand uh, who is a grahastha uh, a grahastha connected to the pashanda and i deal with the uh, the grahastha as it is found in ashoka um, so um, and then i i deal also a little bit with with the ashrama system the, that that's a sort of a broad and after that we go into several papers that deal with individual traditions. Uh, that's Tim Lubin's paper on the Griya Sutras, where the term Gra is at the center, right? Uh, um, 
then um, issue with the Dharma Sutras and Dharma Shastras that um, um, David Brick deals with, uh, the Artha Shastra tradition, the tradition of political science or political theory, Buddhism, uh, Jainism, um, uh, the, the epics, uh, and then we deal with, uh, with, uh, with the Kavya tradition. Uh, so those are sort of the broader uh, you know, traditions that we deal with afterwards. So uh, try to be as comprehensive as possible. But of course, you know, uh, Indian literature of the period is so vast that one cannot completely. Um, uh, these days is a little easier than when I first started to work. We have, uh, we can search <laughs> word searches of these things the way you could not in the 1970s and 80s, right? Um, you have to actually read the whole thing in order to find where a word occurs. When I first started my, my work on the ashrama system, uh, I had to just, if you want to know how many times the ashrama occurs in the Mahabharata, you had to just read it, right? <laughs> There's no other way to get to it. We, uh, <laughs> we had uh, uh, Don Davis on the podcast. Oh, in the timeless time of podcasts over the pandemic, I have no idea in, in real time. Perhaps six months ago, we had Don Davis on the podcast. And, and we touched on um, the really important work that's being done um, uh, with the digitization of texts right. at, at, um, at, at, at your university. And he mentioned that uh, you're a bit of a machine, even without the machines. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit yeah. about your what your day consists of and how you how you accomplish all of this. Oh, um, yeah, I, 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 you know, I, I, I mean, I, whenever I have nothing better to do, uh, I start transcribing. <laughs> um, sometimes, even when I'm, I have a certain amount of ability to hear things while I'm typing other things. So when I'm watching television, which does not require you to watch it really, but to hear it. Uh, I can sit down there and transcribe uh, uh, four or five pages. Uh, uh, I do uh, type fast, uh, and I have a facility of typing uh, the Devanagari into Roman uh, script uh, easily and, and, and fast. Um, and of course, now we have many scans of text. So I can have the two scans in front of me rather than having to uh, take a book and then read it and go like that. So which takes a lot more time. You know, I can be typing my eyes going from one to the other. Right? Yeah. So it's, it's much easier. I've done now. And, and, the, and again, COVID, you know, isolated. I started working on this, I think, December of 2019. Uh, and uh, I've and probably done about 10 texts by now. Uh, I mean, these texts are large, um, and some of them are, you know, multi-volume texts. So, so yeah, so that uh, that has helped, um, um, and uh, we'll continue to do that. Yeah. Well, that's that's wonderful. So, technology is not all that bad. <laughs> technology is not all that bad. I, I mean, I'm, I, I'm technologically uh, a neophyte. Uh, I, I uh, you know, I, I, my fingers do the my technology, I just type, that's all, you know? Uh, and then I send it to Don Davis and he does all the other technological side of getting it into, you know, Google Doc and all, all of those other things, yeah. 
and and there's the the the, the very mixed uh, blessing of the pandemic in terms of clearly the, does not need to be stated the types of uh, challenges and issues that we've all had to deal with uh, some more than others. But then of course for a certain mindset and for certain opportunities, I mean things take off. I mean it's you know I hunkered down and uh, for me it was the, the podcast were part of my war effort as it were. Right, right. It gives people it, it gives people some you know content that they can engage when they're you know in under lockdown and um just went to a whole new level since april 2020 i guess it was almost two years now and uh if you can believe it uh this is number 187 in terms of My podcasts they're doing almost yeah. one a week or more yeah, yeah pretty much uh, 46 a month one a week for sure and then sometimes i'll bank them in case i need a couple of weeks off for a project but um uh, yeah so uh many um uh many different uh children uh um, projects that are, were born under the pandemic right so this 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 concept i i think we've underscored it but maybe not quite this is a super important discovery this term this is not just a, a passing intrigue that you might find in an academic article i mean i mean you know the field you've been around the block you were there before there was a block so this is a very important discovery for the history of indian religions correct can you say more about that yes um, i think without exaggeration it should if taken seriously and applied across the landscape revolutionize the study of ancient Indian religions. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and that, I think, in, is... In not- what ways do you hope, or do you expect, you'd anticipate, or in, in what ways, what kinds of impact will discovery have? Yeah. So you do not know... The problem with our fields, or the fields of the humanities in general, it takes a long time for a discovery to percolate down or up or around for others. I wrote my book on Ashrama in 1993. I wrote the seminal paper that was, that was at, at, the, at the root of how I presented the Ashramas in a paper that I published in 1975. 20 years later, people were still writing about Ashrama as if that work had not been done. Um, uh, ashramas are stages of life without qualification, without you know anything. Uh, so it takes a long time. Uh, so I don't expect this, for example, to, uh, to, uh, to be accepted. This is where it is different from the science. In science, if you make a discovery of something, everybody knows it within a week. And it becomes the basis of further research. It doesn't happen in our area, unfortunately. Uh, I have looked at the at the sales of this volume, uh, the Grahastha. Very weak. Has not sold a lot. I mean, not that I get any any thing out of it, but that tells you the the penetration well, of this, right? Well, you're. The, the the situation that you're describing is actually precisely much of the impetus and motivation behind the podcast and the conglomeration of podcasts that comprises the New Books Network, insofar as 
over the course of this one podcast, many more people will be aware of this, people right. who are stakeholders in Indian traditions in a variety of ways. And um, as you're probably aware, a number of our colleagues listen. And they, this this um, this uh, publication may be off the radar, may be sort of peripheral to, to the research. And and now just listening to this while they're, they're, they're jogging or washing the dishes or, or while they're digitizing texts <laughs> they're now aware of this important discovery right uh, I, I think so and, and also because over the last 20 years it's amazing to know when you're of a certain age like I am how recently how recently all this have taken place right Google didn't exist what 20 years ago right um, so in a sense in the olden days uh, in the 60s 70s 80s um, for a book to have an impact, it has to be read. It has to be, you know, physically available to everybody. And I think today with all the, and, and today, I mean, we are on Indology, we are on Risa, we are on, on various things so that the ideas get, get you know, bandied about much faster. And I think things will be better as time goes on with the digitization and the, dig, I mean, what you are doing, for example, again, to, to publicize what some what may seem like arcane philology that we are engaged in, right? Um, yeah, bridging, right? Bridging, bridging yes. the, the the sort of niches, you know, bridging the, bridging our findings, you know, the fruits of our labor in a way that that's that's understandable and applicable to a larger audience. So. I was going to ask you when you first mentioned it, but I didn't want to get too distracted. But you are just about to finish a very exciting project on Ashoka. Say a word or two about that, because I suspect we'll have you back at some point on the podcast. Uh, That'll be a very popular work, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, this is is something that I, you know, I've been working on Ashoka. Uh, I first had a conference on Ashoka uh, uh, in... Uh, I don't know, 2006, seven here, and a large one in Delhi, uh, quite an international, uh, huge conference out of which came a volume uh, uh, published by OUP Delhi uh, in 2009. Um, but I never thought that I would write a book on Ashoka. I didn't think I'd be interested or, or even competent but it was then that, uh, that uh, Ramachandra Guha contacted me about a new series that he was launching called Indian Lives, uh, published by HarperCollins of uh, Delhi. Uh, it, is, uh, it is supposed to be books uh, grounded, grounded in scholarship, but available or accessible to ordinary people who are not scholars. So what I've done here, uh, two things, three things that I've never done in my life. One, write a biography. (laughs) Never participated in that genre of writing. Um, Second, write, I've I've spoken in accessible ways to people, but never wrote a book that was meant to be read widely. So these are the two things that I had to do. And again, the fact that I could not go anywhere, I had no distractions. So I did finish it and send it off to HarperCollins, uh, um, 
couple of weeks ago. Uh, the book, I mean, yeah. Uh, so it is not a traditional biography. Uh, in other words, you know, you tell them uh, who the person's parents are, grandparents are, when he was born, how his childhood was, right? You know, and his career and early period. And, and then when he died, right? I mean, those are sort of the trajectory of biology. We do not know uh, Ashoka when he was born, when he died. Uh, much of the other biographical details are somewhat sketchy. We know his grandfather and father, not from Ashoka, but from other uh, sources, especially Greek sources. So, so it's, a, it's a very different kind of biography. I call it not a biography, I call it a portrait. In other words, uh, I don't use, and this may be controversial, I don't use any source except once or twice other than his own inscriptions. I'm looking at a person, a personality, as it emerges from his own writings. So a close, sensitive reading of something like 4,100 words that he wrote uh, uh, and left behind uh, to, uh, for, for, his, for his portrait to emerge from, from this. Uh, and that's what I have done. Um, and I've done it under four broad headings. One is Ashoka as ruler or king. One as Ashoka as a Buddhist. One as Ashoka as a, as a moral philosopher with Dharma as its anchoring. And one, Ashoka's relationship with religious diversity of his time uh, called Pashanda. So that the, for a four four themes that I'm focusing on. You'll certainly be back on the podcast to speak about that book, particularly uh, particularly because that book is so public facing. Um, is there anything else you hope to touch on regarding this current book? Um, well, I mean, I, I, I really hope that that it can spawn. Already, we have we have had to amend or change some of the things that we say in the book, because that's not the last word on this at all, right? Uh, it is an initial preliminary, uh, although substantive uh, work, um, but um, I hope others will, will, will take the ball and run and, and, and see, uh, for example, I mean, take a look at the Mahabharata. It is too big for any one person in a, in a deep, sensitive, uh, close reading to find out what sort of person this Grahastha is. And why is Grahastha so central in the Mahabharata? And the word doesn't occur in the Ramayana. Why? Uh, I, the, the, the distinction, the difference, cultural difference, vocabulary, linguistic difference between the Mahabharata and Ramayana is striking. And, and even epic scholars have not really dealt with it seriously. When I was doing the Ashrama book, the term Ashrama doesn't occur in the, Mahabharata, in the Ramayana. It is on every other page in the Mahabharata. Why is this cultural difference so, so striking? So I think a lot of things can be, can be you have to have time and, and knowledge. Not everybody is a specialist in the Ramayana 
or the Mahabharata. I cannot do it because I have not invested the time in reading these texts. So I hope that others will, will pick this up and, 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 and continue. Uh, I told earlier about the term Divija, the twice-born, which is so central to later understanding of Brahmanism. Uh, everywhere in the Mahabharata, nowhere in the Ramayana. Right? So these are the kinds of things that, that one would want to, to, uh, to uh, look at. Why uh, two texts written by, within a similar geographical, uh, historical, cultural context, diverge so radically on very significant points. And I think that will be an interesting uh, thing for you to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's so it's so um, um, serendipitous, or <laughs> that you you mentioned that. The, so what what dragged me into grad school, whether the pressures of destiny or karma or my own foolishness, I don't know, or all three. But what but on 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 the practical level, I when I engaged the Valmiki Ramayana for the first time through you know critical ed and so through it was a senior undergraduate seminar at the time uh, taught by Artie Dhand. Um, by whom? Artie Dhand at the University of Toronto. Toronto, okay. Yes, and so I, I couldn't understand the, the, the ethos of the Valmiki Ramayana was palpable to me in terms of its valorization of this ascetic ideology in the character of Rama that in my view, makes him a poor king and a poor husband at times, and a poor like he's celebrated not because he's as great a warrior, but because he's an ascetic and a warrior. That was palpable to me, but I could not understand why there's no moksha karma samsara. So where are they getting this from? If there's none of that machinery of 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 of, of sort of supporting the ethos of asceticism and why it's so important, none of that's mentioned. How it's so how is it so valorized in the Valmiki Ramayana? That actually is what dragged me into graduate studies for my for my master's thesis. Yeah, to make sense of because it was as if Rama read the Bhagavad Gita or the Mahabharata or parts of the Mahabharata, and everyone else at Ayodhya did, but everybody pretended they didn't. They weren't aware of it. And so, you know, it utterly fascinated me. And so, and even in my, my examination of the Devi Mahatmya, it was wondering why this is happening, uh, why these episodes are told um, by an exiled king to a forest, um, to an exiled king by a forest dwelling sage. What does this have to do with, 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 with the Devi Mahatmya? So it is fascinating. And then the Ramayana is a text I think I will return to. And you never know, perhaps even with an article looking at uh, the term Grahasta therein or not. So thank you for the, thank you for the suggestion. And thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today. You're most welcome. Can I ask you a question outside the recording? Yes, I'll, I'll, I'll sign off formally and then we'll stay on, on the call. So for those of you listening, we have been speaking with Dr. Patrick Olivelle, a really towering seminal figure in, 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 in our field. Um, uh, we've been speaking about a brand new uh, book called uh, Grihasta, the Householder in Ancient Indian Religious Culture. <clears throat> Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and keep contemplating uh, what it means to be a householding holy man in Indian traditions. Take care.